Chapter Seven of the Flirt by Booth Tarkington. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Toward four o'clock that afternoon, a very thin, fair young man shakily heaved himself into a hammock under the trees in that broad backyard wherein, as Valentine Corliss had yesterday noticed, the last iron monarch of the herd, with unabated arrogance, had entered domestic service as a clothes prop. The young man, who was of delicate appearance and unhumanly pale, stretched himself at full length on his back, closed his eyes, moaned feebly, cursed the heat in a stricken whisper. Then, as a locust directly overhead violently shattered the silence, and seemed like to continue the outrage forever, the shaken lounger stopped his ears with his fingers, and addressed the insect in old Saxon. A white-jacketed mulatto came from the house bearing something on a silver tray. "'Julep, Mist Vilas?' he said sympathetically. Ray Vilas rustily manoeuvred into a sitting position, and, with eyes still closed, made shift to accept the julep in both hands, drained half of it, opened his eyes, and thanked the cup-bearer feebly, in a voice and accent reminiscent of the melodious South. "'And I wonder,' he added, "'if you can tell me—I'm Miss William Lindley's houseman, Joe Vaxton's,' said the mulatto, in the tone of an indulgent nurse. "'You in Miss Lindley's backyard right now, sitting in a hammock.' "'I seem to gather almost that much for myself,' returned the patient, "'but I should like to know how I got here.' "'Jess came out the front door and walked round the house and sat down. Mr. Richard had to go downtown. Told me not to wake you. But I heard you splashing in the bath, and you told me you didn't want no breakfast. Yes, Joe, I'm aware of what's occurred since I woke, said Vilas, and, throwing away the straws, finished the julep at one draught. What I want to know is how I happen to be here at Mr. Lindley's. Mr. Richard brought you last night, sir. I don't know where he got you, but I heard a considerable thrash him round, up and down the house, and so I come help him get you to bed in one of them spare rooms." Joe chuckled ingratiatingly. "'Lord name! You certainly wasn't asking for no bed!' He took the glass, and the young man reclined again in the hammock, a hot blush vanquishing his pallor. "'Was I, was I very bad, Joe?' "'Oh, you was all right.' Joe hastened to reassure him. You was just only a little bit tight. Did it really seem only a little? The other asked hopefully. Yes, sir, said Joe promptly. Nothing at all. You just wanted to rear round a little bit. Mr. Richard took gun away from you. What? Oh, I told him you wasn't going to use it. Joe laughed. But you so wildly didn't know what you do. You certainly was drunkest man I see in long while," he said admiringly. You pert near had us both wore out fore you give up, and Miss Richard and me, we used to handlin' drunken man too, used to have big times week in, week out, if Mist Will, that's Miss Richard's brother, you know, sir, what died a whiskey. He laughed again in high good humour. You certainly laid it all over any of them old times we had with Miss Will. Mr. Vilas shifted his position in the hammock uneasily. Joe's honest intentions to be of cheer to the sufferer were not wholly successful. "'I told Miss Richard,' the kindly servitor continued, 
it was a mighty good thing his ma gone up north endurin' the hot spell since mist will die she can't hardly bear to see drunken man around the house mist richard hardly ever tech nothin himself no more you goin feel better sir out in the fresh air he concluded comfortingly as he moved away joe yes sir mr vilas pulled himself upright for a moment what use in the world do you reckon one julep is to me mist richard say to give you one drink if you ask for it sir answered joe looking troubled well you've told me enough now about last night to make any man hang himself and i'm beginning to remember enough more pshaw mist vilas the coloured man interrupted deprecatingly you didn't broke nothin you only had couple glass wine too much you didn't make no trouble at all just went right off to bed you ought see some of them old times me and mist richard used to have with mist will joe yes sir i want three more juleps and i want them right away the troubled expression upon the coloured man's face deepened mist richard says just one sir he said reluctantly i'm afraid joe yes sir i don't know said ray vilas slowly whether or not you ever heard that i was born and raised in kentucky yes sir returned joe humbly i heard so well then said the young man in a quiet voice you go and get me three juleps i'll settle it with mr richard yes sir but it was with a fifth of these renovators that lindley found his guest occupied an hour later while upon a small table near by a sixth untouched awaited disposal beside an emptied coffee-cup also mr vilas was smoking a cigarette with unshadowed pleasure his eye was bright his expression carefree and he was sitting up in the hammock swinging cheerfully and singing the marseillaise richard approached through the yard coming from the street without entering the house and anxiety was manifest in the glance he threw at the green-topped glass upon the table and in his greeting hail gloom returned mr vilas cordially and observing the anxious glance he swiftly removed the untouched goblet from the table to his own immediate possession two simultaneous juleps will enhance the higher welfare he explained airily sir your mr varden was induced to place a somewhat larger order with us than he protested to be your intention trusting you to exonerate him from all so-and-so and that these words etc he depleted the elder glass of its liquor waved it in the air cried health host and set it upon the table i believe i do not err in assuming my cup-bearer's name to be varden although he himself in his simple americo-africanism is pleased to pluralize it do i fret you host not in the least said richard dropping upon a rustic bench and beginning to fan himself with his straw hat what's the use of fretting about a boy who hasn't sense enough to fret about himself boy mr vilas affected puzzlement do i hear all right sir do you boy me bethink you i am now the shell of five mint juleps plus an impot valiant and is this mere capacity itself to be lightly boyed again do i not wear a man's garment a man's garnitures heed your answer 
for this serge, these flannels, and these silks are yours, and though I may not fill them to the utmost, I do to the longmost precisely. I am the stature of a man. Had it not been for your razor, I should wear the beard of a man. Therefore I'll not be boyed. What have you to say in defence? Hadn't you better let me get Joe to bring you something to eat? asked Richard. Eat? Mr. Vilas disposed of the suggestion with mournful hauteur. There, for the once I forgive you. Let the subject never be mentioned between us again. We will tactfully turn to a topic of interest. My memories of last evening, at first hazy and somewhat disconcerting, now merely amuse me. Following the pleasant Spanish custom, I went a serenadin', but was kidnapped from beneath the precious casement by, by a zealous arrival. Host, zealous arrival is not the julep in action. It is a triumph of paraphrase. I wish you'd let Joe take you back to bed, said Richard. Always bent on thoughts of the flesh, observed the other sadly. Beds are for bodies, and I am become a thing of spirit. My soul is grateful a little for your care of its casing. You behold, I am generous. I am able to thank my successor to Carmen. Lindley's back stiffened. Vilas! Spare me your protests, the younger man waved his hand languidly. You wish not to confer upon this subject? It's a subject we'll omit, said Richard. His companion stopped swinging, allowed the hammock to come to rest. His air of badinage fell from him. For the moment he seemed entirely sober, and he spoke with gentleness. Mr. Lindley, if you please, I'm still a gentleman, at times. I beg your pardon, said Richard quickly. No need of that. The speaker's former careless and boisterous manner instantly resumed possession. You must permit me to speak of a wholly fictitious lady, a creature of my wanton fancy, sir, whom I call Carmen. It will enable me to relieve my burdened soul of some remarks I have long wished to address to your excellent self. Oh, all right, muttered Richard, much annoyed. Let us imagine, continued Mr. Vilas, beginning to swing again, that I thought I had won this Carmen. Lindley uttered an exclamation, shifted his position in his chair, and fixed a bored attention upon the passing vehicles in the glimpse of the street afforded between the house and the shrubberies along the side fence. The other, without appearing to note his annoyance, went on cheerfully. She was a precocious huntress. Early in youth she passed through the accumulator stage, leaving it to the crude or village belle to rejoice in numbers and the excitement of teasing cubs in the bear pit. It is the nature of this imagined Carmen to play fiercely with one imitation of love after another. A man thinks he wins her, but it is merely that she has chosen him for a while. And Carmen can have what she chooses. If the man exists who could show her that she cannot, she would follow him through the devil's dance but neither you nor I would be that man, my dear sir. We assume that Carmen's eyes have been mine, her heart is another matter, and that she has grown weary of my somewhat Sicilian manner of looking into them, and following her nature and the law of periodicity, which Carmen's must bow to, she seeks a cooler gaze, and calls Mr. Richard Lindley to come and take a turn at looking. Now Mr. Richard Lindley is straight as a die, 
he will not even show that he hears the call until he is sure that i have been dismissed therefore i have no quarrel with him also i cannot even hate him for in my clearer julep vision i see that he is but an interregnum let me not offend my friend chagrin is to be his as it is mine i was a strong draught he but the quieting potion our carmen took to settle it we shall be brothers in woe some day nothing in the universe lasts except hell life is running water love a looking-glass death an empty theatre that reminds me as you are not listening i will sing he finished his drink and lifted his voice hilariously the heavenly stars far above her the wind of the infinite sea who knows all her perfidy love her so why call it madness in me ah why call it madness he set his glass with a crash upon the table staring over his companion's shoulder what if you please is the royal exile who thus seeks refuge in our hermitage his host had already observed the approaching visitor with some surprise and none too graciously it was valentine corliss he had turned in from the street and was crossing the lawn to join the two young men lindley rose and greeting him with sufficient cordiality introduced mr vilas who bestowed upon the newcomer a very lively interest you are as welcome mr corliss said this previous guest earnestly as if these sylvan shades were mine i hail you not only for your own sake but because your presence encourages a hope that our host may offer refreshment to the entire company corliss smilingly declined to be a party to this diplomacy and seated himself beside richard lindley on the bench then i relapse exclaimed mr vilas throwing himself back full length in the hammock i am not replete but content i shall meditate gentlemen speak on he waved his hand in a gracious gesture indicating his intention to remain silent and lay quiet his eyes fixed steadfastly upon corliss i was coming to call on you said the latter to lindley but i saw you from the street and thought you mightn't mind my being as informal as i used to be so many years ago of course said richard i have a sinister purpose in coming mr corliss laughingly went on i want to bore you a little first and then make your fortune no doubt that's an old story to you but i happen to be one of the adventurers whose argosies are laden with real cargoes nobody knows who has or hasn't money to invest nowadays and of course i've no means of knowing whether you have or not you see what a direct chap i am but if you have or can lay hold of some i can show you how to make it bring you an immense deal more naturally said richard pleasantly i shall be glad if you can do that then i'll come to the point it is exceedingly simple that's certainly one attractive thing about it corliss took some papers and unmounted photographs from his pocket and began to spread them open on the bench between himself and richard no doubt you know southern italy as well as i do oh i don't know it i've been to naples down to paestum drove from salerno to sorrentobi amalfi but that was years ago here's a large-scale map that will refresh your memory he unfolded it and laid it across their knees 
It was frayed with wear along the folds, and had been heavily marked and dotted with red and blue pencillings. "'My millions are in this large irregular section,' he continued. "'It's the ankle-bone and instep of Italy's boot. This sizable province called Basilicata, east of Salerno, north of Calabria. And I'll not hang fire on the point, Lindley. What I've got there is oil.' "'Olives?' asked Richard, puzzled. "'Hardly!' Corliss laughed. Though, of course, one doesn't connect petroleum with the thought of Italy, and of all Italy, southern Italy. But in spite of the years I've lived there, I've discovered myself to be so essentially American and commercial that I want to drench the surface of that antique soil with the brown, bad-smelling crude oil that lies so deep beneath it. Basilicata is the coming great oil-field of the world, and that's my secret. I dare to tell it here, as I shouldn't dare in Naples." "'Shouldn't dare?' Richard repeated, with growing interest, and no doubt having some vague expectation of a tale of the Camorra. To him Naples had always seemed of all cities the most elusive and incomprehensible, a laughing, thieving, begging, mandolin-playing, music-and-murder-haunted metropolis, about which anything was plausible and this impression was not unique, as no inconsiderable proportion of Mr. Lindley's fellow-countrymen share it, a fact thoroughly comprehended by the returned native. "'It isn't a case of not daring on account of any bodily danger,' explained Corliss. "'No,' Richard smiled reminiscently. "'I don't believe that would have much weight with you if it were. You certainly showed no symptoms of that sort in your extreme youth.' I remember you had the name of being about the most daring and foolhardy boy in town." "'I grew up to be cautious enough in business, though,' said the other, shaking his head gravely. "'I haven't been able to afford not being careful.' He adjusted the map, a prefatory gesture. "'Now, I'll make this whole affair perfectly clear to you. It's a simple matter, as are most big things. I'll begin by telling you of Moliterno. He's been my most intimate friend in that part of the continent for a great many years, since I went there as a boy, in fact." He sketched a portrait of his friend, Prince Moliterno, bachelor chief of a historic house, the soul of honour, land-poor, owning leagues and leagues of land, hills and mountains, broken towers and ruins, in central Basilicata, a province described as wild country and rough, off the rails, and not easy to reach. Moliterno and the narrator had gone there to shoot. Corliss had seen surface oil upon the streams and pools. He recalled the discovery of oil near his own boyhood home in America, had talked of it to Moliterno, and both men had become more and more interested, then excited. They decided to sink a well. Corliss described picturesquely the difficulties of this enterprise, the hardships and disappointments how they dragged the big tools over the mountains by mule-power, how they had kept it all secret, how he and Moliterno had done everything with the help of peasant labourers and one experienced man, who had seen service in the Persian oil-fields. He gave the business reality, colouring it with details relevant and irrelevant, anecdotes and wayside incidents. He was fluent, elaborate, explicit throughout. They sank five wells, he said, at the angles of this irregular pentagon you see here on the map, outlined in blue. These red circles are the wells. 
four of the wells, came in tremendous. But they had managed to get them sealed after wasting. He was sorry to think how many thousand barrels of oil. The fifth well was so enormous that they had not been able to seal it at the time of the speaker's departure for America. But I had a cablegram this morning, he added, letting me know they've managed to do it at last. Here is the cablegram. He handed Richard a form signed Antonio Moliterno. Now, to go back to what I said about not daring to speak of this in Naples, he continued smiling, the fear is financial, not physical. The knowledge of the lucky strike, he explained, must be kept from the Neapolitan money-sharks. A third of the land so rich in oil already belonged to the Moliterno estates, but it was necessary to obtain possession of the other two-thirds before the secret leaks into Naples. So far it was safe, the peasants of Basilicata being as medieval a lot as one could wish. He related that these peasants thought that the devils hiding inside the mountains had been stabbed by the drills, and that the oil was devil's blood. You can see some of the country people hanging about, staring at a well in this Kodak, though it's not a very good one. He put into Richard's hand a small blurred photograph showing a spouting well with an indistinct crowd standing in an irregular semicircle before it. "'Is this the Basilicatan peasant costume?' asked Richard, indicating a figure in the foreground, the only one revealed at all definitely. "'It looks more oriental. Isn't the man wearing a fez?' "'Let me see,' responded Mr. Corliss very quickly. "'Perhaps I gave you the wrong picture.' <laughs> "'Oh, no,' he laughed easily, holding the Kodak closer to his eyes. "'That's all right. It is a fez.' That's old Salviati, our engineer, the man I spoke of who'd worked in Persia, you know. He's always worn a fez since then, got in the habit of it out there, and says he'll never give it up. Moliterno's always chaffing him about it. He's a faithful old chap, Salviati. I see, Lindley looked thoughtfully at the picture, which the other carelessly returned to his hand. There seems to be a lot of oil there. It's one of the smaller wells at that, and you can see from the Kodak that it's just blowing, not an eruption from being shot, or the people wouldn't stand so near. Yes, there's an ocean of oil under that whole province, but we want a lot of money to get at it. It's mountain country. Our wells will all have to go over fifteen hundred feet, and that's expensive. We want to pipe the oil to Salerno, where the standard's ships will take it from us, and it will need a great deal for that but most of all we want money to get hold of the land. We must control the whole field, and it's big. How did you happen to come here to finance it? I was getting to that. Moliterno himself is as honourable a man as breathes God's air. But my experience has been that Neapolitan capitalists are about the cleverest and slipperiest financiers in the world. We could have financed it twenty times over in Naples in a day, but neither Moliterno nor I was willing to trust them. The thing is enormous, you see, a really colossal fortune. And Italian law is full of ins and outs, and the first man we talked to confidentially would have given us his word to play straight, and the instant we left him would have flown post-haste for Basilicata, and grabbed for himself the two-thirds of the field not yet in our hands. Moliterno and I talked it over many, many times, 
we thought of going to rome for the money to paris to london to new york but i happened to remember the old house here that my aunt had left me i wanted to sell it to add whatever it brought to the money i've already put in and then it struck me i might raise the rest here as well as anywhere else the other nodded i understand i suppose you'll think me rather sentimental corliss went on with a laugh which unexpectedly betrayed a little shyness <laughs> i've never forgotten that i was born here was a boy here in all my wanderings i've always really thought of this as home his voice trembled slightly and his face flushed he smiled deprecatingly as though in apology for these symptoms of emotion and at that both listeners felt perhaps with surprise the man's strong attraction there was something very engaging about him in the frankness of his look and in the slight tremor in his voice there was something appealing and yet manly in the confession by this thoroughgoing cosmopolite of his real feeling for the home town of course i know how very few people even among the old citizens would have any recollection whatever of me he went on but that doesn't make any difference in my sentiment for the place and its people that street out yonder was named for my grandfather there's a statue of my great-uncle in the state-house yard all my own blood belonged here and though i have been a wanderer and may not be remembered naturally am not remembered yet the name is honoured here and i i he faltered again then concluded with quiet earnestness i thought that if my good luck was destined to bring fortunes to others it might as well be to my own kind that at least i'd offer them the chance before i offered it to anyone else he turned and looked richard in the face that's why i'm here mr lindley the other impulsively put out his hand i understand he said heartily thank you corliss changed his tone for one less serious you've listened very patiently and i hope you'll be rewarded for it certainly you will if you decide to come in with us may i leave the maps and descriptions with you yes indeed i'll look them over carefully and have another talk with you about it thank heaven that's over exclaimed the lounger in the hammock who had not once removed his fascinated stare from the expressive face of valentine corliss if you have now concluded with dull care allow me to put a vital question mr corliss do you sing the gentleman addressed favoured him with a quizzical glance from between half-closed lids and probably checking an impulse to remark that he happened to know that his questioner sometimes sang replied merely no it is a pity why nothing returned the other inconsequently it just struck me that you ought to sing the toreador song richard lindley placing the notes and maps in his pocket dropped them and stooping began to gather the scattered papers with a very red face corliss however laughed good-naturedly that's most flattering he said though there are other things in carmen i prefer probably because one doesn't hear them so eternally vilas pulled himself up to a sitting position and began to swing again observe our host mr corliss he commanded gaily he is a kind old dobbin much beloved but cares damn little to hear you or me speak of music he'd even rather discuss your oil business than listen to us talk of women whereas nothing except women ever really interests you my dear sir 
he's not our kind of man he concluded mournfully not at all our kind of man i hope corliss suggested he's going to be my kind of man in the development of these oil fields how ridic mr vilas triumphed over the word after a slight struggle Ulus. i shall review that ridiculous of you to pretend to be interested in oil fields you are not that sort of person whatever nothing could be clearer than that you would never waste the time demanded by fields of oil groundlings call this the mechanical age a vulgar error my dear sir you and i know that it is the age of woman even poets have begun to see that she is alive formerly we did not speak of her at all but of late years she has become such a scandal that she is getting talked about even our dramas which used to be all blood have become all flesh i wish i were dead but will continue my harangue because the thought is pellucid women selecting men to mate with are of only two kinds just as there are but two kinds of children in a toy shop one child sets its fancy on one partic the orator paused then continued on one certain toy and will make a distressing scene if she doesn't get it she will have that one she will go straight to it clasp it and keep it she won't have any other the other kind of woman is to be understood if you will make the experiment of taking the other kind of child to a toy shop and telling her you will buy her any toy in the place but that you will buy her only one if you do this in the morning she will still be in the shop when it is closing for the night because though she runs to each toy in turn with excitement and delight she sees another over her shoulder and the one she has not touched is always her choice until she has touched it some get broken in the handling for my part my wires are working rather rustily but i must obey the stage manager for my requiem i wish somebody would ask them to play gounod's masterpiece what's that asked corliss amused the funeral march of a marionette i suppose you mean that for a cheerful way of announcing that you are a fatalist fatalism that is only a word declared mr vilas gravely if i'm not a puppet then i'm a god somehow i do not seem to be a god if a god is a god one thinks he would know it himself i now yield the floor thanking you cordially i believe there is a lady walking yonder who commands salutation he rose to his feet bowing profoundly cora madison was passing strolling rather briskly down the street not in the direction of her home she waved her parasol with careless gaiety to the trio under the trees and going on was lost to their sight hello exclaimed corliss looking at his watch with a start of surprise i have two letters to write for the evening mail i must be off at this ray Vila's eyes still fixed upon him as they had been throughout the visit opened to their fullest capacity in a gaze of only partially alcoholic wildness entirely aware of this singular glare but not in the least disconcerted by it the recipient proffered his easy farewells i had no idea it was so late good afternoon mr vilas i have been delighted with your diagnosis lindley i'm at your disposal when you've looked over my data my very warm thanks for your patience and adio 
Lindley looked after him as he strode quickly away across the green lawn, turning, at the street, in the direction Cora had taken, and the troubled Richard felt his heart sink with vague but miserable apprehension. There was a gasp of desperation beside him, and the sound of Ray Vilas's lips parting and closing with little noises of pain. "'So he knows her,' said the boy, his thin body shaking. "'Look at him! Damn him! See his deep chest, that conqueror's walk, the easy, confident, male pride of him! A true-born, natural rake, the Toreador all over!' His agitation passed suddenly. He broke into a loud laugh, and flung a reckless hand to his companion's shoulder. "'You good old fool!' he cried. "'You'll never play Don Jose!' End of chapter 7